Hey there and welcome to another episode of the DCVC podcast. This is your host Akash Bhatt and each week I bring you leading investors and operators investing and building companies all around the world. This is another great episode because we have somebody on the show who has been disrupting the Indian travel industry for the last decade and a half. Joining me today is Alok Bajpai, co-founder and chief executive officer of Exigo, a platform that aggregates and compares real-time travel information, prices and availability for flights, trains, buses and hotels and allows ticket bookings through its associate website and apps. Since Exigo's launch in 2007, the company has gone from a bootstrap startup to becoming India's leading travel search and planning business with over 20 million active users every month across mobile and web. Alok graduated from IIT Kanpur in 2001 and started his career in Europe where he held key product and technology roles at Amadeus, building and managing large-scale web-based products and networks for the first 4 years of his career. He then went on to INSEAD to finish his MBA and then returned to India to build Exigo. This is a story of a fascinating entrepreneur who came back to his home country and disrupted an industry that had been calling for change for the longest period of time. Irrespective of the stage in which you are operating as a founder, this is a great episode for everybody who wants to learn more about building companies across different periods of times when challenges hit you as well as when you have great things going for you. So without further ado, let's head in and listen to Alok's story. Alok, welcome to the DCVC podcast. I'm excited to chat all things that's been your journey within the world of tech companies and I'm really looking forward to taking a walk down memory lane with you and talking everything about your experience in building Exigo and more importantly some of the learnings that you've had but before we get into any of that firstly welcome to the show and how's the year kicked off for you thanks akash uh, great to be on your show um <clears throat> the year has kicked off phenomenally well i think travel is on a rebound um, i mean even calling it a rebound anymore doesn't make sense because most things are above pre covid um and they you know the airlines are running out of capacity the hotels are running out of capacity fares are super high uh, i i think it's kind of a environment nobody expected to be in just two and a half years out of covid that's fantastic you are especially you know within the indian ecosystem travels probably bounce back much sooner than it has in um, than my part of the world so i'm obviously very interested in learning about all of that whirlwind that we went through as a country during covid but before we get to all of that i want to take you back again memory lane as i was talking about you know usually when i start every episode i think about what's the best way to kick start a conversation and i often find myself scratching my head when it comes to speaking to highly successful entrepreneurs like yourself because they've had a fantastic journey in and of you know the whole journey of building a company but it all goes back to the roots and i'm going to ask you a very similar question that i probably ask a bunch of founders when i meet them which is why entrepreneurship what kind of gave you the courage to get started especially that you know being a founder is not easy you go through the emotions of ups and downs on a regular basis and as steve jobs said you really have to be insane to think about becoming a founder i know today it's actually really cool to be a founder but back when you started it probably wasn't So take us through that whole journey and what kind of like led you to become an entrepreneur? Ah, uh, it's a great question. I think uh, uh, brings a lot of uh, thoughts from memory lane. Uh, but just going back to understanding a little bit about where I was coming from when I got started. So I graduated from IIT Kanpur uh, in two thousand one. Both me and my co-founder went there. Uh, we worked for a company called Amadeus in Europe. so we were in the south of france uh, you know tech jobs uh, did that for about 4 years uh, went to insead uh, for my business school this is uh, singapore fontainebleau uh, and while i was at insead um, you know and and a lot of people go for business school when they're kind of at that phase in their career where they're not sure about what to do next right and they think that it's going to open up the next few options for them and and for me you know at that time uh to be honest i didn't really know what 
I wanted to do next. The only thing I knew was that I wanted to do something where, you know, I could passionately contribute with all of my time, attention and, and capabilities because one of the reasons why I went to business school was I had this frustration of not being super utilized in my in my job previously, right? Um, and then the default track at business schools is consulting and banking, right? So I sat yeah. through some of the consulting interviews um, and most of the big guys actually rejected me saying that uh, you can't think straight, right? Because some of these case studies, I would always come up with some ideas which were not uh, pretty much fitting the box, right? Checking the boxes. <laughs> and, and I think uh, um, that led to some level of uh, soul searching as to, you know, what am I really cut out for? And, and around that same time, there was a Bollywood movie called Swades that actually came out, right? Where it's a story yeah. of this NASA scientist played by Shah Rukh Khan that uh, who essentially goes back to India and, uh, you know, electrifies a village. Um, and essentially, he just inspires a lot of people in that village to uh, to do incredible things, right? And and the story, I I kind of started relating to the protagonist that look, I've I've got the best education one one could want, you know, I've lived abroad, made some money, um, maybe it's time to move back to my country and do something there, right? Like it just sort of lit the bulb, so to say, right? And and I think from that moment, I started looking at, you know, is, is entrepreneurship an option for me and uh, started reading up a lot of stuff. You know, I was reading up everything I could find on uh, how some of the best tech companies got created, some of their genesis stories. And, and around the same time, by the way, this is 2005, right? Um, Steve Jobs commencement speech uh, came out, right? Which if you remember, the stay hungry, at stay Stanford. foolish. Yeah. Uh, at Stanford, yes, correct. So um, this, uh, again, you know, like it was so inspiring to read that and, and, and it gave me the courage to follow my heart because uh, I was about to graduate and there was like this dilemma of should I keep looking for jobs, should I just move back to India, do something on my own, right? And um, it was a courageous sort of decision to say, okay, let's just, I didn't have anything in India when I decided to just move back, right? Um, so I finished business school and I moved back to India. Uh, then I realized I still have some business school loan to pay off. So, you know, even though I wanted to start immediately, but I, I, I knew I had to do something, work somewhere to essentially get some on the ground skills and then also pay off my loan. So I actually worked for another company for about seven, eight months. But in my mind, it was very clear by then that, you know, I want to do something of my own, right? And I, this is around 2006, right? And uh, I, I keep having these conversations with my co-founder around then saying, look, um, if God has given us so much talent and capability, why are we not doing something to, uh, you know, to leverage the growth that India is seeing? Because if you, were, if you were in the US or Europe at that time and you picked up the newspaper and that hasn't changed, all you would read about is China and India, right? Um, yeah. You're like, you know, I'm an Indian uh, with some skills sitting here and not able to contribute fully to all this exciting stuff going back home. So those things really drove both me and Rajneesh back. Um, and we started working on the idea of Ixigo around 2006 uh, and launched it in 07. But that's really the Genesis story. Sounds incredible, but it goes back to a movie. I love that because this is probably the first time that I'm actually hearing an inspiration that you know stems from a movie that we're all so familiar with. And it's it's not... It's, it's, it's not at all a coincidence because a lot of Americans, and I can tell you this because a bunch of my friends constantly keep thinking about what, what does life look on the other side, being inspired by the movie. And we all kind of like you know, keep remembering what, um, you know, Shah Rukh Khan does in the movie. And it's, it's a constant reminder that is the grass always green on the other side kind of a thing. And why am I like kind of wasting away my life and I can actually be, you know, working towards something that's a little larger back home. So that was a story that was probably like close to your heart and kind of like played out really well. Now, one of the things that stood out to me um, was, you know, the part that you said you did a lot of like deep soul searching, because that is something that I personally can relate to as well. Quite similarly to you, when I was out of grad school, when I had finished business school, and I was thinking about what my next opportunity is going to be, uh, before getting into like private equity, I was thinking about, okay, going down consulting, going down investment banking, 
um, and and trying everything that you know you traditionally would you know find somebody out of B school to be doing. And quite similar to you in your journey as well, I was rejected a couple of times, and I quickly had to like then rethink where my strengths really lie and what is it I really want to do. Is it like going after something that was you know the herd mentality, or was it something else that kind of like where my true strengths were? And taking you back memory lane again to that particular instance, today we have a lot of founders who listen to the podcast who perhaps are in similar sort of um, situations. Either they're at a startup which is not working out and they have to do a bit of soul searching or they're thinking about starting up themselves but don't really know whether the startup journey is something that they want to sign up for or not given the uncertainties and giving away a very cushy life. So from your own personal experience, what was your decision-making framework at that point? How did you weigh the pros and cons of, you know, going after something that you, again, didn't know a lot about? And there's so many variables involved in that particular decision. Take us through that, share your framework with us, and that really give us an insight into how some of the most successful founders go through those early decisions that kind of define their career over the next uh, decade and decade and a half or more. Yeah, so Akash, honestly, I didn't have any logical framework to think around this. It was, it was a rather emotional decision back then. Um, and, you know, when I say that, what I mean is that the emotion was about uh, being back uh, to your country, contributing to your country, uh, you know, doing something about developing, you know, the, the country given, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to do actually, which was I was exploring as a career option was to do something in CSR. Um, and in fact, I did speak to a few folks down here who were in CSR at very senior positions in, in NGOs or, uh, you know, or, or uh, organizations that were working on uh, social development projects. And basically, their consistent feedback was that, look, if you want to do something for your country, there are many ways to do it, right? Uh, this is one option, but then, you know, if you think you have skill sets to, to build something, to hire people, to kind of teach people, you know, you should think about that because that's also a way to contribute back, right? So I think this emotion of wanting to be back, contribute back, be closer to, you know, your loved ones um, and, and basically, um, you know, I thought of it as a binary decision in life, right? Like it was like, no looking back, I'm moving back and, you know, this could be a move back for good, right? Because you honestly have options to stay in the West and work at well-paying jobs. Yeah. Uh, but at that time, it was not any Excel sheet or not any framework, et cetera, that I was applying to think through this. And in hindsight, you know, if I actually did that, I would probably have, this is not a logical decision, right? I could have, if I actually did too much analysis, I would not be back here. I would not be right. doing anything, right? <laughs> there was because the the probability of failure is very very high in startups right yeah so um so yeah i mean i actually i'm glad i didn't do too much analysis back then because uh most of the analysis would have not shown anything i mean some, most of the market opportunities in india have been created because of someone's endeavor right they didn't exist right um and and i think that's the best part about this market that you can actually create a difference very fast the the kind of adoption curves companies have seen here i i don't mm -hmm. think most of the western world is seeing things like that right now yeah and you kind of ventured into startups at a time when perhaps not a lot of people even did that it was not the logical step as you previously mentioned so again taking you back to the early days of founding how did you stumble upon travel as a space that you wanted to go after because at that point of time, India was obviously at the cusp of disruption. Perhaps you could have looked at many other industries and felt that technology was going to disrupt it. But what about travel? What about the Indian market at that point kind of seemed very interesting that you felt that this is where you want to really build something and you know make a name for you know yourself as well as carve a niche out within an ever-growing industry within the country. Yeah, so uh, first of all, you know, the internet had just started to take off when I moved back, right? We probably mm -hmm. had 20, 25 million internet users back back when we moved. Um, and uh, that gave us some confidence that, you know, it's starting. It's not like nobody's on the internet. It's a, it's a critical mass that's already there. 
most of those people back then were obviously, uh, there was no mobile internet. It was all desktop. And most of those people were affluent folks, right? Uh, who were the first to the internet. Um, and I think the travel uh, connection was very obvious because, you know, we had worked for Amadeus, understood the travel tech industry. Amadeus is the largest GDS uh, global distribution system. They, they build reservation systems for most of the global airlines. Um, you know, and I think I was lucky enough to be at Amadeus at a time when this whole um, move from the green screen to web was taking place. In fact, the first product we launched, which was browser-based and allowed travel to be consumed on a browser, was actually not a use case for buying flight tickets or hotels. It was a use case for buying cruise lines in the US, right? And I was lucky enough to be on the team that built the first browser-based interface for agents to sell cruise because that's a product you cannot sell on the green screen, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, having seen that evolution, seen the power of the web, um, seen what you can do with all the rich internet applications that were coming at that point, uh, gave us the confidence that, you know, we have to build something on the internet for Indian users and in travel leveraging our past experience. So that yeah. sort of became very clear that that's where our uh, ikigai would really lie, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that most founders struggle with because, you know, it's about at least today, it, you've got to be very specific in terms of where you want to like build your company and what kind of niche and modes that you're able to like build around the business. But as you were saying, the challenges of building a company in 2005, 2006 were completely different altogether. We'll head into that in just a moment. But what I'm also curious to understand is you know, of course, you looked at the industry, you felt that this was something that obviously was going to go through a massive disruption. Indians, for the first time, had like internet at the speeds that which they'd never seen before. And you were really bringing about a revolution in, in the travel space. But at the same time, you know, a lot of our listeners would also love to like understand what was that aha moment for you, which kind of validated this entire thesis that you've had all along as the founding team. It could have been the first, you know, set of like investors that you attracted, attracted. It could have been the first time that you hit, you know, your thousandth user. Just take us, you know, back in memory and just talk to us about that first moment where you felt like, huh, ab pe kuch hai. like, you know, we are onto something. Yeah, no. So um, le let me tell you how we, how we had started, right? Like we, in those days, Gurgaon was this suburb of Delhi where, rentals were half the cost of Delhi, right? We're talking 2006, yeah. seven. So we take up this apartment in Gurgaon and, and we had a third co-founder as well who uh, along the way, you know, moved on. But essentially the three of us, we had a three bedroom apartment where we had computers on the dining table, right? Um, and uh, we were building uh, what would become the first meta search in India. Like, like you have the kayaks and sky scanners out there. We built we built the first meta search for India in 2007 and launched it, right? And, um, and you know, the idea was very simple saying there were already airlines like Air Deccan, which had just come in with uh, very low fares and a couple more were announced. And, you know, uh, you know, we knew that the airline market will take off first because the affluent folks were online and they would buy air tickets, but we didn't want to build another OTA, right? Uh, uh, make my trip folks who had been, already around for a while, right? Make it, it started almost six, seven years prior to us. And um, they had just moved back their focus to India from US. You had companies like Travel Guru, Yatra, Clear Trip, et cetera, just raise money, right? Like at the time we were literally launching, these guys had already raised money. So we were like, we didn't want to make another OTA in that crowded space. One of the things I learned at NCAD was to create a blue ocean, uh, mm -hmm. which is, you know, if there's a crowded market, hyper-competitive market, where the margins are not super high, you've got to differentiate your value proposition to enter that market uh, so that, you know, you're seen as a creating a new opportunity or a new market, right? A blue ocean, as opposed to fighting a war in a red ocean. So given we did not have the resources to fight any wars, we were bootstrapped. Um, the funding environment was very interesting back then. There were just two uh, angel funding groups, one in Mumbai, one uh, one based out of Delhi IAN and there was Mumbai Angels and there were seven VC funds operating in India, right? Um, yeah. Essentially, if these nine people said no, uh, you know, you 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 didn't have any money, right? And um, for for the first one year, that's what happened to us. 
right? And essentially, um, we were bootstrapped when we launched. And this story of AHA moment is very interesting. So we said we don't have money to market. We don't have money to buy servers or anything, right? Like, how the hell do we launch anything? And we, uh, as founders, we were uh, we were not very, like, we are from middle class background. Both Rajneesh and I, you know, we don't come from very rich families or anything. Uh, you know, I'm from UP, from a small town in UP. Rajneesh is from a small town in uh, uh, Bihar. And, you know, we've, uh, for us, you know, like, having access to capital was a big deal, right? And at that time, we believe it or not, when we started the company, both of us had some debts to pay off, right? And, uh, and right. yet, you know, I think we wanted to build this in the most frugal way possible. So we launched on a DSL connection in our office as the server, okay? Um, and we send out emails and, and Yahoo Messenger messages to, in those days, you had Yahoo Messenger and Google Talk had just arrived. We send out messages to all our folks on our instant messaging list saying, check out our website. Now, some of our friends actually sent it out further to their companies and their friends. And we managed to crash the site on the first day, right? And we learned a valuable lesson that we should have started off by hosting on a more reliable place because we didn't expect tens of thousands of hits to come on the first day itself, right? Yeah. So, so that for us was the aha moment that, look, there are ways to grow in this market despite not having any money to market to even have your servers being hosted and, and working out of a, a semi-dorm room environment, right? We would wake up in the morning, come out of the bedroom, sit on our computers, work all day and go back and sleep at night, right? Like this, that computers were literally on our dining table, right? right. So um, that's, that's how we started. And it was, uh, you know, it was only till it was only in 2008 February that we were able to raise the first check, right? From a seed, a seed investor based out of Singapore. Um, that story is also very interesting, but that's for later. But basically, uh, the first one year was just about hope, right? Saying that we will launch, people will come, and we will have a business. Yeah. This is a fascinating story. And you know, you often love when founders talk to you about the early days and how the company got started and what that aha moment was. Because every time you speak to a founder, it's so different. And everybody's story is just, you know, one of those things where they never expected that aha moment to actually occur. It surprises them and it surprises, you know, all of our listeners, me included, when I hear the story and it's about, you know what, we did this, we nearly never expected that to happen. Or, you know, just one day we just tried something and it clicked. And that's the beauty of the zero to one journey is that you throw a lot of darts at the board, hoping that one actually sticks to the wall. And then you start, you know, doubling down on some of the things and make sure that, you know, you're doing a good job around it before you start, you know, throwing some darts back on the board again. And I kind of like sense that is something, you know, very similar in your story as well. And you actually gave me a little bit more to think about, especially because later on in the episode, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, those early conversations with like investors and how do they feel, but I'm going to bring that up and speed that conversation up because I think it makes for a nice continuation of the segment. Talk to us about that early days when you actually went to like pitch to like investors in India before even getting to the first investor from Singapore who invested in the company. Let's talk about that early conversations you had with VCs or angels back in 2005, 2006, 2007, what were some of the things that they were telling you? Why were they holding back on perhaps investing in the company at that point? What about the business or the space or the team or whatever it may have been, you know, whatever reasons that they've had not to invest? What were those and uh, how did you feel when you first heard them? Because it obviously is not great to be on the other side hearing a bunch of no's for a couple of, uh, you know, months altogether. No, absolutely. I think uh, the environment was very in interesting because look, online travel is what uh, got the e-commerce engine in India started. And I think IRCTC, even before anybody else was a, like, uh, was an important proponent of that. So you already had IRCTC uh, and four OTAs who had all raised a series A round of, either 5 million or 10 million or thereabouts. Um, and here is this company saying, you know, I'm I'm working on a more futuristic business model for meta search that allows people to find where the best tickets are across these OTAs and airlines. Um, so as an investor, I think 
um, you know, and it's this this mindset exists even today, right? Like you see a space, you see existing players having raised money, uh, you see something new which is unproven. Uh, it's it's very hard for anyone to take a leap of faith that you will be able to fight a battle against uh, well-funded incumbents and still win on the other side, right? Um, so I I I think uh, uh, though we made all the efforts possible, I remember. Uh, some of these investors were based in Mumbai, like I would travel there. Uh, I didn't have money to pay for taxis, so I would travel on local trains to go and meet them. Um, and it was very, very depressing when, you know, end of the meeting, someone said they can't do this at this point and let's let's meet and chat again three to six months down the line because you're like, how the hell am I going to fund those six months, right? Um, and and I think we reached a point where uh, within six months of launch, we launched in June 07, uh, our initial plan was that we would have raised money by November, December, but that plan wasn't working out, right? We were running out of money. Um, and I made a few desperate calls to my friends from business school, some of whom were doing well in life, right? Obviously, some had landed cushy jobs or, um, or you know, basically, uh, they had access to capital. So, um, some of my friends actually became our first angels, right? Um, and they gave us the money because they trusted the team, right? More than anything else. And of course, they played around with the product and they liked it. Um, but, you know, that was the, the first check was essentially a desperate call to a friend saying, look, um, the business has this much traffic. We've started to see a small trickle of revenue, but we are running out of cash next month. Can you help me, right? And... Um, and I think those are the best angels, right? Who just wire you the money the next day without yeah. asking questions, right? Um, uh, and and that's how we got like the first check. And then um, and then we kept talking every three to six months with some of these larger funds, right? I, I with one of them we spent at least like we did four meetings, spent few many hours, right? Um, did a lot of analysis, um, but nothing moved actually. I mean, uh, it reached a point that we are sitting on. Uh, you know, December, Jan, uh, so close to uh, Jan 2008 and nothing has really moved, right? And and uh, and then we get a call on the, so we had an office landline number, we had landlines those days, we get a call on the office landline from, uh, from uh, someone in Singapore, right? Um, it's a guy called William Klipjen, like he calls and says, I want to talk to the CEO, right? Um, yeah. And this was like cold call, right? And and uh, I said, I am the CEO, like the guy who picked up the phone. Is the <laughs> because we didn't, we had a very small team. Eh? By then we had, we got just like, I think three or four people that we had hired, but you know, they were, they were all coders. Um, so we started chatting and he said, I've been playing around with your site, really like what I saw. Um, you know, and obviously in those days, uh, there was no Zoom equivalent. We had Skype, but you know it's not the same thing. So he said, "Can you get on a plane and meet us in Singapore?" And you know we look at our bank account, and uh, it has just enough money for me to go to Singapore and stay for a day and come back. Right? That that's what the Exigo Bank account had at that point. And we then have a long debate at night saying, "Should we take this punt?" Uh, when all the investors have said, "No, you know, should we should we actually do this?" And but. You know, we all decided let's let's make a last punt. So I go there, I pitch, and they essentially gave me a term sheet the next day, right? In fact, I pitch in a hotel room, um, hotel business center, and they ask me to wait downstairs in the lobby, and they come down an hour later and show me a draft term sheet, right? Yeah. And I was like, you know, it, maybe just the Indian investment environment wasn't moving fast enough back then for for disruptive ideas, right? And there were not enough investors. There were not enough startups either. So, you know, it was just uh, uh, not like today's world at all. <laughs> and 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 that's how we closed our seed round, right? Like one meeting in Singapore and uh, we raised half a million dollars like that. Uh, wow. February 2008. That's insane. I mean, you don't get to hear stories like that, especially in the early days when the ecosystem was not as evolved. Perhaps maybe more so in the last couple of years, you've heard stories like those. But that really takes a different breed of investor also to take a bet on you guys. And in retrospect, if you were to, you know, pinpoint to something, would there be one or two reasons why you felt this investor really took a bet on you? Was it yes. the idea? Was it the team? Well, like, absolutely. what amount it can next to doubt? 
Absolutely. I think uh, William Klipjan is one of the sharpest investors I've ever met. Um, he built a company called Kelku in Europe, uh, which was a price comparison engine for e-commerce, right? And he yeah. sold that company back in 2004 to Yahoo, right? So imagine mm -hmm. building a price comparison engine in the early 2000s, selling it to Yahoo. Uh, he was the CTO of this company, I think. In those days, that acquisition was done at half a billion dollars, right? Um, mm -hmm. And and therefore, the kind of understanding he had about how the internet works and how meta search or price comparison works, right? Both from a consumer mm -hmm. mindset and supplier mindset, it was just phenomenal, right? I mean, that kind of experience just didn't exist in India. Uh, yeah. And therefore, you could see why you could see what we were onto, um, and and why they could move so quickly, right? So. So I, I think a lot matters on how sophisticated the investor is in understanding the space that you're in, right. uh, in the kind of technology that you're working with. Uh, those things really, really help in people moving fast. So we were just lucky to have found him. I mean, in fact, he found us, right? Um, yeah. and, and I think uh, uh, I think the the game changed a lot also with, with his inputs, right? Because somebody like that comes in, they also give very high quality inputs to help you uh, go yeah. faster, right? So that's a very interesting point that you bring up there because they say that, you know, being in a relationship with an investor is quite similar to that of, you know, being in a relationship with a partner. But the only caveat that in this case, <laughs> the breakup usually happens one-sided. Like the investor actually has a lot of the leverage and they can, you know, in most cases, get rid of the founders as opposed to the other way around. So it's really important for a lot of founders to pick the right set of people that they want to work with it at any given point in their uh, funding journey. Now, having said that as the context, and you did mention that, you know, this person was able to bring a lot more um, knowledge uh, to the table, share a lot more about, you know, you talked about pricing, you talked about a bunch of other things from a technology standpoint that they were able to bring from their days at Yahoo. How best can founders, in your opinion and your experience, leverage the experience network as well as everything that a VC brings to the table? And is there a framework or a playbook that you have found which has been very successful in terms of fully leveraging what VCs actually bring to the table from an investment point of view and then really using that to like grow the company? Yeah, so I, I think, look, uh, um, this, this case was very special because here was somebody who had experience in almost the same domain, but maybe not in travel, but in commerce, but building a very similar thing, right? So um, this is a very rare case. I think it's very hard to uh, find investors who have actually built your kind of business in the past, uh, right? And, and I think, you know, over time, as we raise money from Elevation, from Sequoia, from DIC, et cetera, so we've had uh, more rounds of investment. I think one thing that's very important in the founder-investor relationship is that there has to be absolute trust. Uh, and when I say absolute trust, it's also about saying, uh, you know, what's what's the boundary line between, you know, giving advice versus um, actually being too pushy about it, right? And invest. The smart investors know that, right? So yeah. I think the smart investors will only speak or add value when you actually ask them to right and and they they will not want to unnecessarily give you advice on things which either they are not experts on or where you're already someone who they trust knows a lot more right and yeah. and i think it's it's in areas where you need help and you reach out and they actually end up helping you uh you know it's in those areas where you can see uh, the difference between, you know, the folks who will go out of their way to make introductions or, uh, or you know, get you, uh, you, you know, in front of the right people. Um, because largely, I think the value that we've seen in the past is that obviously VCs have amazing networks. Uh, they know tons of people in the industry, uh, both in large uh, enterprises or companies and in other startups. They can connect the dots and see you know who you should be working with to power something or drive something or partner etc uh, and i and i think that's where founders should leverage uh, the investors a lot but uh, to be honest you know we've been lucky that we've not had investors who 
come in and say, hey, run the business like this because I believe that's the right way to do it. Um, you know, we've we've had uh, phenomenal uh, folks who know, you know, what that boundary is uh, between adding value and and uh, and and you know, like uh, not not really even needing to speak, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, some of the smartest people who have been on our board, they, they speak very infrequently. And when they do, it's actually valuable, right? And, and those are the kind of investors you you really value what they say, right? Because you are always looking out for, uh, you know, what does this person think about this? You know, that these are valuable insights. And thank you share, uh, for sharing this with us because I think this is going to help a lot more founders as they are thinking about constructing their cap tables and being the right set of investors on at various stages. Now, moving the conversation along, you know, I wanted to bring up my favorite blog. And some of my listeners have heard this uh, a couple of times in the past, but uh, this was written by First Round Capital. And it's talk, it talks about um, you know different leadership styles and how the most successful founders feel extremely comfortable in giving away their job every couple of months. The blog is titled Giving Away Your Legos. And in this, it really talks about the emotions that a young child feels when he or she gives away those building blocks for the first time to somebody else. And then they see that somebody else is perhaps building a tower in a very different way than they had imagined. But in order for you to be a very successful founder, it is very important for most founders to actually start empowering more people in their organizations so that they can start building these verticals at scale. Now, having said that as the context, how have you looked at your own evolution from a leadership point of view? Because in the early days, you have to be a lot more hands-on. You bring in you know, a lot more of that creativity and you're trying to like solve for problems that you perhaps had never seen for the first time, seen for the first time or never ever come across in the past. But as the company scales and it gets to product market fit and beyond, we are in the growth stages, the challenges become almost completely different. You're almost thinking about less about linear growth, but more about, okay, how do we grow this horizontally and make sure that we have various aspects of the business actually well thought out with the right people um, looking after all of them. So how have you seen your leadership style change over the years as the CEO of the company? And um, what can you reflect back upon in terms of some of the learnings that you've had? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. Look, um, if, if I have to think about, you know, some of the most fundamental uh, shifts in how I used to operate or how um, I used to think about, um, you know, whether it's execution or whether it's how to build the org or culture, you know, I think some, some of the things have remained consistent over this decade and a half or, you know, almost 16 years that we've been uh, running Ixigo. And I think there, uh, the consistency has been about paying a lot of attention to who we hire, um, you know, and and how good a cultural fit are they uh, emerging, you know, over time, right? And And I think we've been very conscious about those things as founders to the mm -hmm. extent that even till date, uh, we don't hire anybody until they have a final round with one of the founders right we've been that conscious about it because you know that's one thing where the downside of being wrong can be very high right yeah um and even if it's a 15 20 minute interaction it's largely to do with cultural fit but you know that interaction gives us confidence that this is the right guy or uh, girl for our team right so i mm -hmm. think uh, um we've been extremely conscious as founders and both rajneesh and i you know think the same way about this that you know I think startups make or break because of the DNA they end up building over over time, right? I and agree. That DNA has to be built very thoughtfully. Um, sometimes it slows you down. Like obviously, you know, founders, uh, if they insist on taking the last round, it means maybe it takes a few more days to hire someone. But it's worth it, right? And 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 I think there are certain other areas where uh, I've seen that the best founders do not let go of the uh, microscope. I mean, founders have microscope and telescope both, right? Like they can see mm -hmm. the vision. They can also jump in and understand what's going on in, in the areas within their span of control, right? And and I think uh, some of the best founders out there 
uh, who are in, inspirational, right? You look at Elon, you know, it's not like he's ever lost his microscope, right? He has he has a very big telescope, but he also has a microscope. He, he can jump in and see exactly what's happening, you know, in any part of the org. And I think that's been the inspirational, um, you know, sort of leadership style that we have sort of tried to build here as well, where both Rajneesh and I, uh, as we've gotten high quality people, most of these people are smarter than us in the areas that they operate in. Uh, but we've not let go of the ability to jump in and see where, you know, our thoughts or our creativity or our inputs can add some value. Um, and also understand, uh, you know, if we need to change direction, right? And this second part is actually more important because the bigger risk uh, for companies that fail over time is is over committing to something that uh, that is going to get disrupted very soon, right? And mm-hmm. and I think if you look at Exigo's evolution, we've never been shy every few years to reinvent ourselves, right? Uh, today we are not that flight meta search that we started from, right? Today we are actually the largest OTA for next billion users, right? Uh, yeah. And and I think. Uh, this evolution has come through every few years not being shy of disrupting ourselves, uh, which can only be possible if as a founder you are, again, cautiously evaluating what new risks you need to take and are not shy of taking those time to time, even at the cost of you know, disrupting your core, which is what we've done a couple of times already. I love that. And there's so much in that particular segment of an answer that you shared with us that talks to a lot about how the culture is built at the organization. And you're absolutely right. Most of the culture comes from top down as opposed to just bottom up in which most people think that what is you know culture and how is it stemming from the founders? And I think you guys have, you know, at least from what you've shared with me, you've done a fantastic job in being very let, conscious. Let me, about- let me share something on that, on culture. We yeah. have never had a culture poster on our walls. Never. Mm-hmm. Right, um, because we always believe that culture is what you do. It's not what you say you you intend to do. It's actually Agreed. what you do on the ground. Right, every action of the founder, the leadership team, you know, every person you hire, every person you fire, every every uh, uh, you know interaction with someone, uh, every decision you take sets the culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think you've got to be thoughtful of those things when you're thinking of what message are you conveying, you know, in terms of the culture you're building. So if if empathy is our core value, which we say yeah. is, is, is the strongest value in our culture, it came out of this deep insight of saying, okay, let's ask the people in the team what they believe the top cultural attributes today are, right? Because you should just play it back as a mirror. And yeah it should align with what the founder believes that the top three cultural attributes are, right? And for us, empathy always emerged as, as the number one thing there because the way we operated, the way we took decisions, which always favored our customers or favored our employees, even at the cost of our own balance sheet, right? I, mm-hmm. I think it always demonstrated uh, that very, very vividly, right? I mean, during COVID, for example, we did not fire anyone in our team. Like we did not let go a single person, right? It was a conscious mm-hmm. decision we took because we thought it's the right thing to do for our team at that point. Even at the cost of, you know, the company would have shut down if COVID did not go away within nine, 10 months, right? Yeah. Um, because zero revenue scenario, nobody builds in. We gave yeah. back refunds from our own pocket to customers who had money stuck with airlines with the hope that we'll get it back. But even if we didn't, we, we thought it's their money. We don't, you know, we cannot... Uh, not refund it forever, right? And and we took such decisions with great pain and and consciousness, saying that look, it's the right thing to do, right? Mm. And, and I think those actions set the culture more than you know just talking about anything. So so we remain very conscious about our actions, uh, the actions being taken by the role models within the company, because yeah. ultimately that's what culture is all about. I agree with you, and I think I read this a few years ago, and it's always stuck in my head. It, culture is not what you do when people are watching. It's actually what you do when people are not. And that just goes to show that every little thing that you're able to like subconsciously and consciously able to like do and no one's kind of like watching sets, 
you know, the overall culture for an organization or within like smaller teams as well. And um, you kind of like embodied that in the way that you shared with us, your experience of how it's kind of like played out within your organization. And uh, that's very interesting to me because it's, it's, it's one of those things that I've personally believed that kind of makes or breaks your organization is just the people because people come for the people, people stay for the people and people actually leave an organization because of the people. And it's really important to build the right set of, um, you know, culture values, but more importantly, being the right people who embody that or quite similar to you who can actually take that baton forward, even in your absence. And uh, I'm glad that you shared that with us. And, you know, as we're talking about this, um, you know, one of the things that popped into my head, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up, is just some of the learnings that you've had after going through a black swan event like the pandemic. I know we touched upon this at the beginning of the conversation, but every time I speak to founders who have kind of come out on the other side, almost unscratched, I say unscratched at the surface level, because obviously deep down the scars are deep. Um, the scars are, you know, some things that most companies are still kind of healing from in some way. What was that experience like for you? And more importantly, how did that make you, Rajanish, and everybody else on the leadership team think about a challenge that you perhaps had never faced in your life before? Of course, you went through the 2007-2008 financial crisis that had its own um, set of challenges, um, and you had probably just raised around at that point. And then we had the 15-16 funding freezes in India, which was a different um, you know, cycle in, in and of itself. But we yeah. had never seen anything like the 2020 pandemic. So talk us through some of the challenges that you went through and how did you like overcome? And if there's one or two instances that kind of like immediately pop up in your head or kind of like very notable in terms of memory, we'd love to like hear that. I mean, we've been no stranger to challenges and uh, calamities, right? So uh, I, I think uh, for us, you know, COVID was not the first and we know it will not be the last such uh, challenge that we faced uh, but just going back right like 2008 uh, as soon as our seed round was announced right we started getting inbound from the same investors who uh, were buying time right six months earlier um, and one of them gave us a term sheet and we were literally days away from money being wired to us when uh, the Lehman crisis erupted right end of mm -hmm. 2008 and, and that round did not close um, and we were left in the lurch, right? We didn't have enough money to survive more than two, three months again, because we we were expecting a few million dollars to come in within days, right? Uh, so our burn rate was obviously uh, higher than what it should have been. And um, and I think the the way we handled that crisis kind of gave us a template which works till today. Uh, the first thing you do when you feel there's a crisis is you have an open discussion with your team, right? So we actually pulled the small team of 25 odd people that we had back then together in a room and we started discussing very openly about this whole crisis we are in and how much money we have. I mean, the downside was people would get spooked and leave, but we were like, look, if we can all find a solution together, right? Like we can come out on the other side with flying colors and this is, let's work on a plan to do that. And one young engineer just stood up and said, why can't we all work without salaries for like as long as it takes to get out of it? And then, you know, then we can have some kind of profit sharing or ESOP to compensate for that. Right. And, and I loved the idea. Um, and we actually did that. Right. So everybody in our team worked for almost nine to 12 months, you know, most of them nine months, I guess, back in 2008, nine at half their salaries, right. Uh, on average, obviously, working without salaries would have been an extreme and we had some revenues coming in which were growing slowly but surely. Um, so we were able to get out of it in a way where we were actually breaking even on the other side uh, and everyone in our team got more ESOPs over time. Those ESOPs made money for most of those people who, who stuck with us. In fact, nobody left us for a couple of years even after that incident. None of those team members, right? And yeah. I, I think that template uh, we've now used, you know, at least three times, right? I'm, I mean, and COVID was slightly different because again, the COVID crisis was also a humanitarian crisis, right? So the lens through which we looked at it uh, was, was a very different lens. Nobody knew what this virus was. Nobody knew how long it would last. Nobody knew whether we would be safe, even as individuals, right? We would all be impacted by it. What would happen? Nobody knew anything. It was all uncertain, right? 
and and therefore we felt that in an uncertain environment the last thing we want to do is put people's jobs at risk and put people's lives at risk by them not being able to fend for themselves right even at the cost of losing the company and that's something rajneesh and i had a candid discussion on saying is it worth running a company if we lose our people right and and we were like no you know because end of the day the company is the sum of the parts right and if we do something that saves the people that could save the company and it not just only saved us you know like today uh, akash today we are at 5x of pre covid level i don't think many hotels in the world would be uh, at 5x of pre covid and we owe it entirely to the efforts of the team uh, during lockdown we built revolutionary products during the downtime exigo assured which is our flagship product was built in the downtime in the lockdown by our engineers right and you know that kind of motivation only comes from being in a crisis together as a team and trying to come out of it uh, and giving all it takes right because you know everybody is in it together and it starts from the top the first message in both these discussions from the founders was guys we are going to zero salaries for as long as it takes for everyone to come back to their original salaries right i mean yeah. that messaging is super important agreed i think it's very 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 warm to hear such sort of stories coming out of the pandemic where an engineer is you know willing to put up their hand and share that they're happy to take a pay cut or no pay for the duration of the crisis and you know and this not another just that, let me let me tell you another extreme uh, yeah after this pay cut was announced right um, and and agreed by everyone obviously that was the right thing to do uh, there was another situation right uh, there were unprecedented amount of refunds uh that had to be processed right there were crazy amount of customer calls that were coming in right uh, i mean i'm sure all of us had stuck refunds during that time or didn't know what to do with our next booking um our entire team was actually on customer support for almost 3 weeks i mean including arshin here like we we were taking calls answering emails answering chats with customers and making sure people had the information they needed Uh, yeah. about what to do with the next ticket that they had booked with us and and also many of those guys were refunded from our pocket in fact to the extent that one day we ran out of money in our pg account because payment gateways don't work on the premise of having bigger refunds than collections right they work on the right. premise that every day you will collect more and a small part will be refunded right yeah. uh, the premise here was inverted suddenly which means there was a working capital crisis for on the payment gateway side especially over weekends and one particular weekend we pulled together about 40 45 lakhs of money from our employees from their wow. personal savings into that account to refund our customers on time I no mean, way arshin wow. can vouch for it he also contributed in that but you know that's the level of collective ownership it ended up building right so these crises actually brought the team together built more ownership everybody got more esops by the way in fact all those esops today are worth a lot more than whatever salary cuts people had uh, yeah. you know it's we kind of proud that not only did we do the right thing but it actually worked out for everyone on the other side you know these are some wonderful stories and you don't really get to hear it in popular news media because no one wants to cover this kind of stuff but i love that you are able to like share some of these very personal sort of you know kickbacks and you know things that people almost kind of volunteer to do so as opposed to just saying hey this is something that the company is uh, wanting to do so that is very interesting and you know you are kind of beneficiaries of all the good karma that's kind of come off of it right now you guys you mentioned you're doing well so the employees who are doing well these are great tidbits for as companies are being built today and as founders go through some really challenging periods of time in the future it's one way for them to really think about navigating this um in 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 some sense and also for all the other ones who are listening who are employees of companies you know sometimes it's about coming together for the larger mission as opposed to just looking at it as a short term setback and you've already shared with us some interesting insights into how your employees have been going about helping you build on this larger vision that you've had and that's fantastic to hear and i know we're coming towards the end of our time here on the uh, episode but i would like to spend a little bit uh, you know more time maybe a couple of minutes more to just talk to you a little bit about you know about some of the overall learnings that you have had as a founder you've obviously gone through a bunch of ups and downs you've worked with some fantastic people 
from an investor point of view, from an employee point of view, you've really had an amazing customer base over the years. If you could share one or two things that you've you know, taken away from this decade and a half long experience, what would that be? What would you kind of allude to and say that, hey, this has kind of just been you know, phenomenal in terms of the learning that I've had. And if I were to do it all over again, I mean, I, this is something I look forward to in terms of just repeating itself over my time as a second time or a third time founder or doing it all over again. Yeah, so I've spent a lot of time talking about team and culture, but one thing that makes Ixigo what it is today is that we've been extremely obsessed about the customer. Uh, and one of the opportunities in India for any founder looking at this market is that, uh, you know, applying the Western template here may not work, right? Because India is like, it's it's like a continent, right? Like we have so many different cultures and languages within the country. Uh, we have people who have their own nuances of how they operate, right? Depending on what uh, what part of India they are from, you know, uh, what religion they are from, what ethnic group they are from, you know, they have they they actually it's it's a it's a universe in itself, right? And and as a company which is addressing this market, I think understanding some of those social contexts and finding the consumer behavior evolution that's happening on the ground and and then imagining products that could uh, actually work in the Indian context is very important uh, in this market, right? I think if you look at the historical success stories, they were largely companies that took the Western template, applied it on India uh, and scaled on that. And, and some of those things obviously worked, but then, you know, the next wave is really about solving India's specific problems, uh, you know, with India's specific solutions. And Great example yeah. of that in our case is the Ixigo train app, right? I mean, yeah, 25 million people travel on a train every day in India compared to just 400,000 on a flight, right? And the moment these consumers started coming online on the back of cheap smartphones and internet, like we were not shy of back in 2012, 13, you know, taking a stab at that part of the market because we knew that if we want to win India, we can't win just on flights. Like we have to win by winning trains first. Right, because mm. that's where that's where Indian travelers uh, relate to, right? I mean, flights is the top five percent of India is is the folks who can afford flights, but right. trains the lifeline of the country, right? So we, yeah. we took a very deep bet on that side of the market, which has kind of paid off over time because we are now the largest train OTA here. Um, but as we are going deeper down that rabbit hole, right, tier two, tier three, tier four cities, understanding how various geographies, cultural uh, nuances operate, you know, what kind of reasons for travel may be very different, right? And um, we still believe that there's so many unsolved problems, right? I mean, it's very exciting because uh, sometimes you feel nobody has even bothered to understand or talk to that customer to understand what their challenges are, right? And, yeah. the, and I think in every space in India, that's where the next opportunity is. I completely agree with you. I mean, there's a new set of customers that's being born every single day that's getting exposed to the internet, that's getting exposed to technology, that's getting exposed to a different way of actually going about their day-to-day. -day. And it's an opportunity for you as an organization to like learn every single day about how they transact, how they behave, and how they're going to push the needle moving forward, especially when it comes to transactions on the internet. And you brought up some really interesting points on that. And it's great to hear that. And uh, I have one final question. This is my favorite question because it gives me a lot of insight into how people think about their own journeys, right? And I often ask everybody who's on the show if there's one thing that they would tell their younger self or any piece of advice they'd like to give their younger self, what would that be if they were embarking on the kind of journey that they've had way back all over again? So in other words, if you are starting your journey as a founder of Ixigo all over again, what would you tell yourself? I think I would just tell myself to think bigger. You know, many a times uh, we restrict our thinking basis, the resources we have access to. Um, but, you know, our learning has been that if you can actually aim for, you know, for larger outcomes, uh, even if you underachieve by a bit, right, you end up building something which is meaningful, right, for you as well as for, for the company. 
Um, yeah. I think there's there's no downside of thinking bigger every time. Right? So I would just have started by thinking even bigger than where we started thinking around. That's fantastic. And this is in spite of Exico being one of the biggest brands in the country. You still have that ambition, that vision of being bigger than where you are and obviously going on to achieve larger things. And I wish you and the team all the success and all the luck that is required to go on to become, you know, a much bigger brand, enter more verticals where you can you know, continue to dominate as a player. This has been a fantastic conversation, Aro. Thank you so much for being here and sharing some great insights from your journey as a founder. I personally have learned a lot about how you think about certain challenges and certain, um, you know, things in life. And you have been very generous in sharing those frameworks with us as well. I would love to, at some point in the future, bring you back on again for like a version two of the episode and really sit down and maybe delve into some of the other things that you have learned from a use case standpoint and certain things that have occurred over the years during your course of the, of, of, of the journey. And especially with these new businesses that you're launching uh, much more recently and where that's going to take you over the course of the next few years. Sure, Akash. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Well, that unfortunately brings us to the end of this episode, everybody. And I hope each and every one of you had something to take away like I did. And if you did, please make sure you go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. It really helps others discover the show, but most importantly, keeps you updated about all of our future episode releases. Make sure you tune back in again next week because we've got another great operator here for you on the show. And until then, stay safe, everybody, and continue to keep hustling.